Welcome to another Peterson Car Stories. I am Daniel, and today we have uh, the Peterson's Chief Historian, Leslie Kendall. Welcome. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's it's great to be here talking with you. Yeah. So, Leslie, you've been with the Peterson for how long now? Uh, April was 30 years, so 30 plus. Congratulations. Still going strong. Yeah, thank you. Getting a lot done here. It's a, it's a dream come true. So um, you're the chief historian here at the Peterson. Um, what does that entail exactly? Well, being a chief historian means that I get to help put the car uh, in its context for everybody here. I, um, I determine, I help determine what's important, what stories need to be told, um, how to tell the stories, what, what vehicles, um, to tell the stories with. Um, and of course, anybody, any questions that come up, I do a lot of research and writing for the exhibitions, working on a book right now, finishing that up. Um, can you tell the audience what it's about? A a, preview? Sure. Sure. Yeah. The book it's, um, tentatively titled define Detroit uh, automobile manufacturing in Southern California. And it takes a look at, uh, every, every manufacturer, of an automobile um, beginning in 1896 to the present. And there have been over 800 individual distinct manufacturers of automobiles, people or entities that, that made an automobile or aspired to make an automobile uh, or made at least one um, for, for public sale. Wow. And when, when uh, should our listeners be ready to, to get their hands on this book. Well, listeners, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm hoping by this time next year, it'll be in bookstores everywhere. All right. We'll, so stay tuned. Time will tell. Um, going back, you said you've been with the Peterson for 30 years. How, how did you come to the Peterson? My road to the Peterson began um, uh, on my trip home from the hospital as a newborn my father had a 57 Thunderbird. I was driven home in that, and the rest is, as you know, it was unfolded from there. Um, I was the only student in kindergarten or first grade who knew what a Bugatti was. Uh, all through grammar school and high school, if I had a, um, a report to do or, or a presentation to do, I made sure it had something, some connection with an automobile so that it would at least capture my interest. and. I found out that most people were interested. If you, made, if you talked about cars, people would kind of listen to you. Uh, cars are what we all have in common. What was your first introduction? Was it like a matchbox or was it um, your, it sounds like your, your parents had some nice cars or something. What was your introduction to the automobile? I mean, not the average uh, kindergarten or first grader knows yeah, what a Bugatti is. I don't, how did you know, that happen? I don't know how I got to know that. I just don't know. I, I just, I just can remember um, I would doodle the Bugatti emblem, you know, when I was when I was a little kid. I remember doing that. I I, I couldn't tell you how that came about. Uh, if any of your listeners have any any thoughts about about how first graders you know figure that figure out that stuff, uh, let me know. I was there a particular Bugatti at the time that you remember? No, that, no. I just okay. the, just the name, you know, the name just resounded with me and. And well, for one thing, I would go to the library, the local library in our little, you know, center of town, and um, I would check out all the car books. 
And they knew that when Kendall was coming, you know, if they got any new car books, the librarians, which kind of knew me because I've been there all the time, they would say, oh, Leslie, we've got, we've got a new book, you know, about, about cars. You ought to take a look at it. And, and they would allow me to check out um, some books. Um, there's some books that were called gold dot books at the time that you had to, um, they wouldn't let just anybody check out. You had to be a member of the library guild, which my parents were and, and that sort of thing. So I'm pretty trustworthy around books and it was a good thing because I, I, <laughs> I checked them out a lot. What do you, would you be like highlighting them or would you do a little? I was respectful of <laughs> books that don't belong to me. Um, um, but I'm, I'm telling you, I, um, uh, I would read over and over and I looked, I, um, I learned what coach building was, you know, which I ended up absolutely fascinated by that, that you could buy a chassis of a car and not the body and then get the body built later, kind of a mix and match process. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and what's the best coach builder in your opinion? Well, it depends on the day of the week and the hour of the day. Um, I don't know. I think uh, Gia is absolutely fantastic and that they've survived. I think Pinaferina has it going on. I think, you know, there's, you know, switched coach, coach builder like Graber and Figoni Falashi in France and Franet and Sauchik and just to name a few. Just to name, just to name a few. <laughs> the British coach builders, German coach builders. I mean, you know, you name it. You know, they're the ones that, that uh, dress the automobile, which ultimately dresses us. And for the audience, where did you grow up? I grew up in North San Diego County, um, kind of a spread out town, real horsey town. Okay. And before you came to the Peterson, you worked at another museum, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, I worked at the San Diego Automotive Museum. I was... Uh, a mortgage loan officer. I had an MBA. I got an MBA. Um, I thought the world's going to want me if I have an MBA. Not true. Um, I came to had to come with terms with that. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? I said, oh, I know my dad's a you know kind of into real estate. I I should be in real estate at least peripherally. So I became a mortgage loan officer, and that was um, singularly unfulfilling. And I I said, well, it's. You know, I, I cannot do this. I just can't make the American dream come true to everybody but me. So I went up to the um, branch manager at the time and I said, your name is Martha. I said, Martha, I, I adore you. I said, you're fantastic. You're a great leader. I, I just, this is not for me anymore. I'm leaving right now. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I wish I could give you more notice, but I'm just had my, I'm just at my limit. And she goes, totally understand you know have a have a great life at which which a lot of people wouldn't have said that and i ended up this is literally true i rolled up my sleeves i loosened my tie and i drove from the mortgage company to the um san diego automotive museum i parked the parking lot right in front and i in went what car a, a 1965 Ford Falcon that, as it happens, my parents bought brand new. What color? It's uh, it, light metallic silver blue. It's white now because I, you know, got in half a dozen accidents with it. And I kept having to repaint it, but it's. Still, and you still have that car today? Still, I still have it. It was the first car I ever drove. Actually, we were on the desert, and I was, I don't know, twelve or thirteen. My father said, "I'm tired. You drive." <laughs> I thought, I said, "Oh yeah, sure. Why not? I'll drive." You know. It's okay. So 
then you know he had a little tougher time getting me out from behind the steering wheel than he did getting me um, behind it. But but so I took that car. Yeah. I took that car to San Diego Automotive Museum and I walked inside and I said, "Who's in charge? You know, who's the curator?" And they pointed at to a fellow who was you know working on the floor. He was you know installing an exhibition as it happens. And I said, hi, I'm Leslie Kendall. I've been a member here for X amount of time. And um, I find that I have a great deal of free time now. And I said, I would really like to put it to use volunteering here. I said, can you use me? He said, he said yeah, I think I might be able to. Um, I said, well, what can I do? We said, well, you see that picture over there? Hang it up over there. And I ended up helping him for the rest of the day, install the exhibition. And I came back and as a volunteer, and eventually he hired me. And after about six or eight months, um, I was, uh, I became the curator because they didn't, they didn't really have anybody at, at the time that could, that knew the entirety of automotive history. Not that I'm, you know, especially, you know, in, in tune with anything particular, but that, that could put it into, um, that could frame it for the general public. And that's kind of what museums are about, you know, collecting, preserving, and interpreting, and in, interpreting involves education and telling people um, why, is, you know, why is this stuff so important? What, what all, what's all the fuss about? Mm -hmm. And how long were you there for? I was there for about 13 months. <laughs> wow. I was there for, and- Moved it, your way up pretty quick. It was, it was, <laughs> it was short, I was curator, and, and what I wanted to do was put together an exhibition on alternative power. This is, this is. What year was this? 1992. Okay. And I, you know, I, so I got my little ducks together and I had remembered because my father um, would bring me up to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles County who had had a collection of 66 cars and motorcycles, about eight or 10 of which were on display at any one time. And, um, I remember just being enamored of them. And I remember one in particular, I wanted the Chrysler turbine car, 1963 turbine car. And so I called, you know, I called the Natural History Museum from San Diego, my desk at San Diego. And I said, you know, I talked to the curator, ended up ch chatting with the, the guy, uh, Matt Roth, a super intelligent guy. And I said, I said, uh, well, I'm really interested in doing it. An exhibition alternative power. I think it's people are going to start being curious about this, and I'd like to kind of help lay lay a foundation for them to understand it. And he said, "Well, we're we're not loaning any of our cars because we we're going to build a new museum, and our, these cars are going to serve as a core collection." And I said, "Oh, really? What museum are you building?" And he said, it's a Peterson Museum. I said, well, I know Peterson, you know, I didn't know Peter. I, of course, I knew of them. I didn't know Mr. Peterson yet. And um, um, he, he ended up saying, well, look, come up anyway. You know, if you want to look at the cars, come up anyway. And we ended up walking up and down the aisles, actually squeezing between the cars because they're really like cheek to jowl in this gigantic room. And I was I was utterly amazed at the quality of vehicles in the collection and the fact that nobody was seeing them. I, I was just astounded. You know, I kept saying, Matt, that's it. You have one of this. Oh my God, you've got a this. And you, oh my God, you got a 1917 Woods dual power gas electric hybrid built in Chicago. Oh my God, you've got the 1915 White Squadron Stutz. And, you know, it just went on from there. And he kind of looked at me funny like for the rest of the day. And I, 
and he said um he didn't he was more interested in um your passion well he, the reason he was hired by the naturalist museum to 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 put together the peterson automotive museum is because um he was um kind of interested in industrial technology and settlement patterns and how people moved about and um, what the car means in the car's context, not necessarily the car itself. And I was more about the car itself at the time. Not, I'd like to think I'm a little bit more enlightened now than I used to be. And he said, you want, you want to do something for me? I said, I said, sure. He said, you know, can you tell me about our collection? You know, tell me, um, can you write up a, um, a report, you know, saying essentially what about everything we have is important? Why should we have it? And if we should even keep it? And if we keep it, what to do with it? And so I'm more than happy to do that. So, you know, within a week, you know, I went to my favorite coffee house in San Diego and, you know, this was before laptops. So I got out my college ruled paper and my pen and had a few expressos had a more than a few <laughs> um you're working you know working through it typed it up sent it to him and um he ended up actually offering me the position because he was looking for somebody who could manage the collection somebody who knew a little bit about you know kind of what they're doing because you know a lot of people no, uh, I'm not saying that I'm anything special, but but a lot of people know they're they're an inch wide and a mile deep. Mm. They know everything about uh, a small aspect of motoring history, which is great because those are the people that write the books about those things. But at the at the other end, you, you have to know how to put the car in the context. And one thing about the Peterson Museum was that it wasn't just about the cars; it was about how the cars fit in to um, American life and global, ultimately global life and, and culture. And um, LA, the most car-centric place the world has ever known, still is. We grew up because of the automobile, or otherwise we'd have grown out. Hmm. And, and it, was a, it was a story that needed to be told, needed to be told properly with the right cars. Then how did you get um introduced to mr peterson and how did the collection of the i guess the natural history at the time how did that grow what's interesting um one of the very first things that matt and i talked about was that the natural history museum did not need every car that it had uh, we could get rid of about we could dispose of uh, about half of the vehicles and and not diminish the collection we had five model t's um they were lovely, the, but we didn't need five to tell the story. We needed a very early Model T. We needed a late Model T. Um, at the time, mm -hmm. you know, this was th talking thirty years ago now, and so we had a, a deaccession and a and a sale. We sold a dozen or so cars, and <clears throat> that left us with a you know a more um, solid core collection and funds to add to the collection. I'm sure and funds like like. Uh, you know, most museums do. It's it's kind of a general practice that anything, the resources that you gain from the disposal of any object go into a fund that you use to acquire additional collections. 
um, collections are always collections, and the money normally doesn't get intermingled with other with other um, branches of the institution. Like you don't pay the electric bill with money you just made mm -hmm. from selling, you know, selling a Toyota. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's for something very specific. You know, people. It's the spirit of the gift. If people give you something, they're demonstrating by the fact that they're giving that to you that they want that money to go to the collection. And so it's it's again in keeping with the spirit of their intentions. Um, then, I guess my second part question was: um, How did you? What was your first interaction with Mr. Peterson? How did you? How did you meet him? <laughs> it was uh, it, I met him at SEMA. Uh, I think it was about 1994. SEMA is an acronym. SEMA stands for the Specialty Equipment Market Association, and uh, he founded it. Uh, in the 50s, at the time, it was called the, the Speed Equipment uh, Manufacturers Association, but he kept the he kept the acronym the same and just changed a couple of the words. But and it's it's the biggest uh, trade show in Las Vegas and has been, and uh, I believe still is. Still is, yeah. The biggest trade show just it's coming up at the end of this month. It coming it's usually right around Halloween. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. And um, so I went with with Matt, you know, who's the curator at the time. Um, uh, you know, to the to the um, SEMA, and then we went to the, the Peterson booth. This lavish, you know, um, but but kind of um, you you could tell that it was it was serious. It was lavish, but it was it wasn't foofy or anything like mm -hmm. that. It was just it was very grand, mm. um, as it needed to be, because this is a this is a man who owned a publishing empire that 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 published dozens of titles mm -hmm. and and i'll be darned if right when we were standing there he wasn't coming up surrounded by you know maybe three or four people and um you know matt worked me to um you know within proximity of him and he introduced me and i met mr peterson you know i wasn't even here for a few months and i got to meet him and i and i I looked at him and I thought, this is a guy to be respected. This is a very serious person. As it turns out, he was a very funny person. He was a mm. quick study. He had a rapier quick wit. Mm. Um, and I did a lot of listening when I was around him. I thought, you know, this is not the time to talk. This is the time to listen. Mm -hmm. This is the time to listen to this guy, you know, who's made the success, who's who's intelligent, driven and incredibly entertaining to listen to so it's just just shut your mouth and you'll learn something you're not learning talking speaking of learning what's the one thing you learned from him over the years working with him well he had a saying it was um don't cheat the deal hmm. if if you if you agree to something follow through with it um and i and i kind of melded that thinking with something that my father said is, you know, he said, it's, you don't have to wring every dollar out of everybody. It's okay to leave just a little on the table if you have to. Don't worry about it. You're going to drive yourself, you know, you're going to spend 99% of the time chasing the 1% and it's just, it's rarely worth it. So I, you know, you combine those two, those two thoughts and there's, I think there's some wisdom in there. hundred percent. That's really good wisdom. Once you started working, uh, full-time with the Peterson, um, what were your duties? I was hired to be the collection manager, which means I oversaw the care of the automobiles, the cars, the motorcycles, and trucks that we owned. 
and um, which which meant that I saw to their, uh, make sure they were clean, the tires were filled, and I also, as it happens, their interpretation. And I started writing about them. I, um, we didn't, but the Peterson Museum, um, we were, we had space for, we were going to have space uh, for about 120, 140 cars. But the collection at the time only consisted of, you know, by the time we got it down to a reasonable number, about 50 or so, um, only about 12 or 14 of which we could were really useful for, for the museum the way at the time it was laid out. And so I had to go out, I had to go out and find a, you know, 80 or 100 cars from private lenders. Wow. You know, to, to, to loan to a museum they never heard of. I mean, how, that didn't exist. How were you able to do that? Like, was the internet, I'm sure the internet wasn't around at the time, right? So it, it wasn't, you it, couldn't just Google search this. No. So how did no. you, how did you find these lenders? Um, I belong to car clubs, okay. uh, Antique Automobile Club of America, AACA, Classic Car Club of America, Horses Carriage Club of America, and plus I, I subscribed to every magazine. So I just, I kind of made myself aware of who had what, uh, not realizing that it was ever going to come in handy. Can but, you just bring out the white pages kind of thing? Well, not necessarily. <laughs> what I would do, though, is you know, if, if I saw something in like uh, Car Classics magazine, um, I make a note, you know, at the very end, it always gives the ownership credit where they live. I track them down. I say, okay, you don't know me. Um, I represent a museum that doesn't exist, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, the guy that had a little something to do with the museum, James Peterson, you know, legit guy. And of course, you know, there, I think maybe only one or two people didn't respond favorably when I asked them. Most of them but the far majority were honored that, yeah, I want to be a part of this LA and the automobile and me getting to help tell that story. So I ended up filling the filling the museum with automobiles, you know, finding all the cars and, and it happens writing about them. And uh, at the time, the museum, the entire first floor of the museum was one exhibit, uh, which consisted of a dozen or so dioramas. And the exhibit itself was called Streetscape. It was kind of a roughly walking tour of uh, Los Angeles. You know, if you started out on a dirt road, then you end up on a on a cobblestone road, then you end up on a paved road. And meanwhile, you're you're walking by a blacksmith shop, you're walking by a, a section of board track, you're walking by an old bungalow, an old gas station, a new car showroom, the world's first the recreation of the world's first strip mall, which happens to be on um, Wilshire Boulevard. Um, walking distance, uh, yeah hefty walking distance, but walking on the, uh, from, from here. Um, and the second, the second floor, um, was gigantic galleries. You know, one was a grand salon. One always had a Hollywood gallery. One gallery was called state of the art, which you know, the idea was to take a five year span of time and, uh, you know, every six or eight months and switch it up. And that's the one thing that Peterson had, uh, well, one of many things that Peterson had going for it, is that we sh we swapped out cars. We didn't just park them and forget them and say like like it or not. This is what we've got for you. You know, there's so many stories to tell, and we wanted to get around to the stories, every story. And you can only do that by by switching up exhibits. So uh, you were saying uh, at the time uh, the museum, I, I'm assuming it was still owned by the uh, LA County at the time, had very few cars, and you were. You said that we were looking for lenders, but it, I'm sure it got to a time where the Peterson had, um, or Mr. Peterson had to add to the collection. Um, were you 
did you have to do anything with that? I um, I was I helped Mr. Peterson a bit with I recommended cars, and he would ask me, um, you know, if yeah, there were always auctions coming up. It was always fun to go to an auction with Mr. Peterson um, because he and you know the director at the time, um, you know, and I would kind of you know sit there and we'd talk about we had the auction catalog and we'd talk about it, and he'd write a number in the catalog and then uh, and then leave, and then uh, we would. To do do our best to intimidate everybody else into backing out, and which didn't always work, but but we ended up with some some pretty special cars. The very first car that Mr. Peterson bought as a serious collector was our '48 Tucker serial mm. number thirty. Wow, one of three owned personally by Preston Tucker. Wow, and that kind of set set the tone for the rest of the collection because everything he bought was important. Uh, on multiple fronts, it was either owned by somebody whose name you'd all recognize, or driven a, a competition that is familiar to everybody, or it, it exemplified, you know, the type, of style, or an era of, of object, uh, uh, or it had something to do with L.A. Because at the end of the day, we're a local museum. Um, you know, we speak on behalf of the world, but this is Los Angeles we're in. People don't come to LA to hear stories about, um, you know, the Swiss automobile industry, although it's incredibly interesting and I would love to do a gallery on that, but it's just not what people- It sounds very niche. Yeah, very niche, but there's (laughs) some interesting Swiss stuff. There's there's a lot of countries out there that you don't normally associate with automobile production, but nevertheless. What's a memorable- uh memory at an auction or acquiring a vehicle or a journey um, to get to bring a car into the collection that you can mention that i can mention <laughs> um there's nothing secret about any of this any of this process um and i don't know that i can really think of one what or what what, what, ve- what vehicle were you happy to add to the collection that you were proud to bring into the permanent collection of the peterson well a car that i kind of um Urge Mr. Peterson to buy. We have a Mercedes Targa Florio, Roadster 2895 Targa Florio. It used to be owned by Don Ricardo. In fact, it was um, part of uh, a sale of, of his of his vehicles after his after his passing. And um, it was, I mean, it was a locomotive of a car. It was it was everything Mercedes could possibly have been in the air. It was the grandest car. It was the sportiest. It was huge. It used an aircraft engine, a, st- a straight six single overhead cam. Uh, but this is just a Mercedes 2895 uh, Roadster, uh, locomotive of a car, gigantic uh, six cylinder engine over seven liters mm. for six wow. for only six cylinders, a single overhead cam. The engine was just a, a, a work of sculpture. I mean, the whole car is a work of sculpture. It's, it's very. It's very cubist in its approach. It's very severe. Mm-hmm. It's very Teutonic, and it it it's, it speaks to um, uh, what Mercedes and ultimately and later Mercedes Benz meant meant to the public. But I thought it was an important car because it was it had um, race connections. It had this connection with Don Ricardo, who's worked at NBC Orchestra, NBC Orchestra uh, leader that lent his name to Ricky Ricardo. Oh. for I love I love Lucy show. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, kind of a little bit familiar. And plus, that car was delivered to the United States um, when it was a new car. So it just had all, it just had so much going for it. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a lovely car. We actually took it out on our Hollywood parade. Um, one of my favorite features, and I think I mentioned this to you, is the the toolkit. Like that's um, some people think it's just a step, which I'm sure it is too. But um, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't it pretty much have every tool you need to work on the car? In the 1920s, there wasn't a gas station on every corner. And you had to be a pretty savvy mechanic if you were expected to keep your car running. At the time, they had chauffeurs for a lot of that. Um, you'd drive Malord or Milady around, and then you know when he or she was in the club having lunch or doing whatever they you know rich people do, um, you'd be out there polishing the brass or you know seeing to you know vehicle imperfections. And but when you had a little two seat roadster. Um, not, not so little actually and something went wrong you were kind of on your own hmm. and they gave you the tools to fix whatever might have might have gone wrong not everything you couldn't fix i don't think you could you know replace you know an engine bearing or anything like that on the road but um you can do some basic things that they expected uh, any would anybody would have to do eventually yeah it's a beautiful car if you have been a uh, seen in person stop by the peterson it's usually in our vault so Come check it out. So um, working in, I guess, the automotive industry, um, you've been, um, you, you've attended a lot of concours, a lot of uh, major car shows, prestigious ones. Um, and you've, you're a judge, uh, or you've been a judge at multiple ones. Um, can you name a few? Um, I've been lucky enough to have been tapped to be a judge at, um, uh, and it feels like everything. I, you know, I judge at Pebble Beach um, for the past couple of years. I was um, chief class judge for the, an award that the Peterson hands out, the Vitesse Award. So, how long, so I'm going to stop you there because I think you're being a little modest. But how many years have you judged at Pebble? Um, I think I first judged maybe 25 or so years ago. I don't. I don't judge every year because mm -hmm. some years. Um, um, you know, we're showing two or three cars and there really isn't the time to devote it. You can't show multiple or represent multiple cars and mm -hmm. then, and then judge at the same time. It's, you can, but it's really difficult. Um, and sometimes they just don't need an extra, you know, the judge with my qualifications, they need other people, which, um, it's, it's, uh, it's okay to be a civilian at Pebble beach every so often. And I've walked with you on the lawn, uh, one year and. You're quite the celebrity. You, you're uh, getting stopped multiple times to say hello. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you're very kind to say that. I, you know, Pebble Beach is people know you. You might not know them. Let's well, just put it that way. Well, I, <laughs> I, it's I, I love seeing everybody there because it's we're we're around objects that we respect and like and appreciate on so many different levels. And I mean, I, I just, I, I really enjoy talking to people. And of course, those things, you know, they're, they're important for the museum. They're gigantic mixers, too, because you get to see people. Maybe you'll only see them once a year. You know, there are people who work across, you know, town in LA that I see once a year, but it's, it happens to be hundreds of miles away when I see them. And, you know, people from, you know, Europe and Asia. Uh, the Middle East, they you know they send cars to, to Pebble Beach, Australia, uh, you name it. I don't think there's a corner of the world that we don't get cars. I don't think too many from Greenland, but but there are um, places that uh, uh, 
it, it just about everybody, um, you know, like I say, has cars in common and appreciates cars, and the top cars among them always seem to end up at Pebble Beach, and and so do their owners. Outside of Pebble Beach, what um, what Concord or what show have you been uh, truly honored to be part of and judge um, over the years? There, there are a lot of. I think um, there's a show right now that. Um, uh, takes place in uh, uh, an area adjacent to to uh, Pasadena called called the uh, San Marino uh, Motoring Classic. Uh, it's a concours that takes place in, um, locally. And what's interesting about a local concours like that, especially a, a high quality concours, the concours that uh, attracts um, the, the quality of vehicles, this one does, is is uh, the cars are mostly local. Um, true, a lot of them, you know, come from, it's right after Pebble Beach, so some of them come from, you know, they just send them down from Monterey. But, you know, it's, it's interesting what people have in their garages locally. And a lot of those things you just don't see until they come to the, you know, come to this, you know, Concord d'Elegance on this huge uh, arena on this marvelous patch of lawn. And, you know, you get to look at hundreds of cars and, you know, catch up with uh, hundreds of people. Yeah, locals, essentially. Locals, yeah. yeah. What's the most beautiful car ever designed? One single car. That's, uh, it's a very, um, <laughs> very mean thing to do to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> or, or is it the turbine? No, I, I, I think there are cars that are beautiful to me um, in, in different ways. I think um, the mechanical artistry, for example, behind the turbine, is incredibly interesting and of course the, the body that was designed by um elwood engel but interpreted uh, by Ghia of italy is really really pretty at the end of the day i mean that's just it's really sleek and for the 1960s that car had it going on and then i just think you know but you go back a little bit and probably i'm gonna stop you there because i was actually at pebble beach when that car was uh there the orange one, yeah, and it was driving, and to see your reaction, you look like a little kid. Yeah, like, you're so excited to see it actually driven. You know, so, yeah, yeah. And you telling me what it was um, a couple of years ago was was really neat to see. Yeah, I remember that, and it sounds like um, it had a marvelous sound. Mm -hmm. It was um, this big whoosh. You know, it's it sounded like a. Um, like a vacuum cleaner, yeah. like a very loud vacuum cleaner in the front, and then you walk to the back, and it sounded like a like a dryer vent, you know, the it, because the the exhaust was continuous; it wasn't like pulses, like mm -hmm. like you'd get from a uh, inter, you know, a piston engine. Um, but it was interesting, really interesting. I think um, another you know piece of mechanical artistry out there um, is uh, I meant I think I mentioned it before the Woods dual power gas electric hybrid built you know. In 1917, 1918 era. Um, when you I, say dual hybrid, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, dual power, it's a gas electric hybrid. It has a, um, this is the teens, by the way, uh, had a four cylinder engine followed by a, um, a motor generator. And you would start on the motor, the electric motor. And by manipulating a switch uh, inside the car, um, you would engage uh, a clutch that would start the gasoline motor. And at that time, you could either shut off the electric motor and drive on gasoline power alone, or you could leave it uh, and then charge the batteries at the same time. 
Wow. Or, or you could leave both of them engaged and, um, you know, you, you could, if you knew exactly how to um, set everything just right, you could, uh, the uh, heady speed of 35 miles an hour. Which was pretty quick at the time. In 1917, you have to ask yourself, where could you go to achieve 35 miles an hour? And that was plenty. Yeah. That was plenty in the day. And uh, where was that car produced? In Chicago. Okay. Interesting, though. Um, it, it was two entrepreneurs uh, endeavored to produce um, that car in Los Angeles. Um, there was a company called Balboa, and there was a guy named uh, Mr. Felt, who, who later on thought they would revive it. And, uh, and word of their success um, is not, um, was not forthcoming. So the few that they built, um, I'd love to be able to find one, uh, don't survive. Are, are there still some out there? Um, there's, well, of, of the Woods Dual Power, uh, the Chicago Built Woods, there are four known. Okay. Natural History Museum has one, um, and there, others are in collections elsewhere. Um, but, um, you know, getting away from, you know, if you're talking in terms of pure aesthetics, I think um, I'm probably in very good company when I say our 1947 Chisi Talia. Mm. It's a car that set an entirely new direction for for automotive design. In fact, it was celebrated by the Museum of Modern Art in 1951 uh, in a show that they presented called Eight Automobiles. And it, it looked at uh, automobiles like hollow rolling sculpture, uh, like object with this cultural quality and uh, interesting 47 was also the the year that uh, christian dior came out uh with the dior new look and so here you have cars right after the war you have uh you know cars that are very um simple looking but elegant you have um, you have clothing very simple and elegant and then you ended up with um you know the architecture um you know the Bauhaus was starting to take on um, and then you you end up with um, lots of the Western style um, glass and 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 wood, um, Western ranch houses, and things things became simpler. It, it wasn't this um, these curly cues that you'd associate with the Baroque era uh, anymore. It was it was things started to become linear and and very very rational. That of course that changed with the 1950s. You know, America was riding pretty high, and everything had to look like a rocket ship, um, for good or for bad. But but uh, at the time, it was a, a seminal car. My favorite feature on that car is actually the door handles. Um, were they one of the first ones to do that? Because I know it was later adopted by, I, I believe, Porsche. Um, yeah. Kind of press the button, handle pops out. Yeah, the door. Uh, I think what you're talking about are the What's the door name? handles that are that are they're flush. Yes. Practically flush with the body, and you you push a little button, and then a lever pops out, and you pull the lever, and the door opens. Um, it just, it's just one of those styling affectations. It was kind of expensive to do it that way. You mm -hmm. know, you didn't see your average, you know, 48 Ford with those kind of door handles. Uh, but it was kind of, it was kind of done that way in, uh, in Italy. Mm. It was not unusual for a coach built car or a very, very inexpensive, a very expensive car to, to have that feature. Um, so do you, I mean, we, we asked two questions for every guest I come on here. Do you follow or did at one time motorsports? 
I don't follow motor. I never have followed motorsports religiously. I certainly keep myself aware of it, what's going on, the the technologies, because the technologies um, relate r- r- very greatly to to uh, or end up relating to what we end up driving on the street. That's where paddle shifting came from. That's you know, so many things came from competition, fuel injection, um, disc brakes, uh, you know, all of those things. Kind of like a trial error kind of thing it's, until it's, it's a consumer. Yeah, it's kind of like a um, racing is a is a great proof of concept mm. um, way to way, way to suss out your your technology and and see what's going to work and what doesn't, what's practical and what isn't. And sometimes you have to try some pretty weird stuff, and and sometimes it works. A lot yeah. of times it doesn't, <laughs> but but. You know, it's you have to try everything. You know, don't don't say no before you try it. Yeah, and also um, another question we ask is, uh, what do you think about the EV uh, world right now in the automobile? What's I, your take? I, I think I know enough not to predict anything <laughs> um, because I've you know, being a student of automotive history, the minute you try, you, you say something is the next big thing, is exact moment it's not. Um, but right now, there's um, lots of political will to see um, electric cars um, dominate. And r- as long as you make the technology convenient for people, they'll use it. Just make it convenient. Will we all always have gas cars? Will we, you're asking? I think... I think will it, we always? I think it, it, the short answer is yes. I think they will end up being used um, in in closed circuits eventually i think the time will come you know uh, you know eventually uh, i hope i'm wrong because i like the idea of cars driving out there but you know when you talk in terms of electric cars you also have to think in terms of autonomous vehicles and once you get the software right for for all the, the mm-hmm. autonomous cars they can communicate with themselves you're going to get around much faster much more safely um, than you would just you know driving around and but you know it's like horses and buggies they didn't go away entirely i mean they're still out there you know there's still horse racing out there mm-hmm. they're still sulky racing you know mm-hmm. for the kind of modified buggies and there's still some horse buggies in certain parts of the u.s too yeah. being used every yeah. day so. yeah. well like i said i grew up in a little horsey town and, and there were people ride their horses you mm-hmm. know their trails everywhere and it was you know kind of interesting they didn't have to do it nobody got around that way but you know so uh just wrapping things up here uh this coming year uh the peterson is going to be celebrating their 30th anniversary here what's been your favorite part um essentially you've been here before the museum so what's been your favorite part overall of being part of a a legacy like the peterson automotive museum Uh, i've enjoyed immensely two two things i can't just not really one it's just building the collection um you know to making all it can be for for what this museum is and and what what Los Angeles means to everybody in terms of the automobile and the kind of cars that we represent ourselves with, and also telling so many stories, um, you know, I, you know, curated uh, when I was curator of you know over hundred exhibits from scratch, you know, just writing about them, finding the cars individually one by one, and you know, we t- we told some pretty fascinating stories. We talked about fins, we talked about convertibles, which is kind of a go-to for summertime. We talked about how people travel. Um, we had a, an exhibit called Vacation Land USA, 
and a lot of people saw L.A. first um, in, in behind the wheel of a car, dragging a trailer behind him. And we wanted to talk about that. And then we did the pre-war version of that. We did supercars that featured our 2895 Mercedes, when a very early supercar, um, and dozens of other things. Dozens, literally, dozens of other things. Leslie Candle, thank you for being on Car Stories. And thanks, listeners, for uh, joining. If you like this episode, stay tuned for another one next week. Make sure you follow us, give us a, a good rating, and we'll see you next week.